So the sutta I want to talk about tonight is the Honeyball Sutta. It's found in the Middle Length Discourses and it's number 18. Don't think it's as well known as a number of other suttas, but it's one that, well, I think should be well known. Uh, somebody at some point asked me to, what was my top 10 favorite suttas? So I came up with a list, uh, except of course it has 11 on the list. And this is one of the suttas. I actually am gonna share with you basically a chapter from a book I've just written on dependent origination. This particular sutta isn't normally thought of as a dependent origination sutta. That's because most people, when they think of dependent origination, think of the 12 links of dependent origination and this sutta does not address the 12 links. But there's the general principle of dependent origination, which that is this thing arises dependent on that thing. If that thing doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. And this particular sutta uh, yeah, uses this to explain basically how we process our sensory input and how we can get into trouble or not get into trouble as we process our sensory input. So, thus have I heard, once the Buddha was staying at Kapalavastu. Kapalavastu is where the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, was born and grew up. And so he was back visiting his hometown. After he had gone on alms round, he retired to the great wood for the day's abiding. In other words, he went off to meditate for the day. He was sitting under a tree when a fellow whose name in Pali is stick in hand, apparently he walked with a walking stick, showed up and interrupted the Buddha's meditation to demand from him, what do you teach and what is your doctrine? The Buddha's answer was a bit cryptic. I teach in a way such that one does not quarrel with anyone in a way that concepts no more underlie one who lives detached from sense pleasures without bewilderment, free from worry and craving. Uh, that may not be exactly clear. The questioner was not pleased. He stuck out his tongue, waggled his head and left. In the evening, the Buddha returns to the grove that he's using as a monastery for his monks and tells the monks what's happened. And one of the monks asks, how does the Buddha teach in that way? And how is it that concepts no longer underlie the Buddha? And the Buddha gives another cryptic reply, he says, as for the source through which concepts and mental proliferations beset one, if nothing is found to desire or cling to, this is the end of underlying tendencies to unwholesome states, the end of quarrels and disputes, 
ere these evil states cease without remainder. So, yeah. All right, what do we have here? Evil, unwholesome states such as quarrels and disputes arise dependent upon desire and clinging. And desire and clinging arises dependent upon concepts and mental proliferation. Right, so you can see there's dependencies here, but it's, if you're familiar with the 12 links, it's not exactly what we find in the 12 links. The general principle of dependent origination is actually far more important than the 12 links. The 12 links are just an example. And so what the Buddha is saying is evil unwholesome states such as quarrels and disputes arise dependent upon desire and clinging. Often it's given as craving and clinging. And craving and clinging arises dependent on concepts and mental proliferation. But what exactly does this mean? Well, after saying this, the Buddha retired to his kuti, his dwelling, and the monks were puzzled. And so they thought, who can we ask? Who can explain this to her, us? So they went to Mahakachana. Mahakachana was known for someone who could explain in detail what the Buddha had said in brief. And they asked Mahakachana to explain what the Buddha had said. Mahakachana said, you guys should ask the Buddha. He's the teacher. He knows what's actually going on, but I'll do my best. And he says, for each of the six senses, dependent on sense organ and sense object, sense consciousness arises. So sense organs, you know those, right? Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind as the sense, sixth sense. And sense objects, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, textures, and we could say mental activities, thoughts, emotions, memories. So dependent on the sense organ and sense object, sense consciousness arises. The meaning of three, these three is contact, sense contact. With contact is conditioned, there is Vedana. Vedana is usually translated as feelings, but it doesn't mean emotions. It's just... It's just your initial categorization of a sensory input as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. So it feels pleasant or it feels unpleasant or it feels neutral. What one feels, one conceptualizes. This is the Pali word sanya. Usually it's translated as perception, but I think conceptualization is a better translation. We get our sensory input and then we conceptualize what we're sensing. What one conceptualizes, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one mentally proliferates. This is probably still a bit cryptic, but I think we can build another table of 
what's going on here and then discuss this in some detail. Dependent upon sense organ and sense object, sense consciousness arises. Dependent on the three, this is contact. Dependent on contact, Vedana. Dependent on Vedana, conceptualization. Dependent on conceptualization, thinking. Dependent on thinking, mental proliferation. Okay. So I think we've got the six senses and their objects pretty well. Consciousness could be defined as that which knows. Like right now, until I say so, you aren't conscious of the pressure on your left foot. But the moment I say pressure on your left foot, you become aware of that. You become conscious of it. The sense object, the floor or whatever your foot is resting on, that was there all along. Your foot, which has touch nerves in it, that was happening all along, but you weren't conscious of it. It's only when you actually put your attention there. Just like right now, if you look back here, there's a tanka hanging on the wall. You can see it, maybe you can't see clearly what it is, but if you look really carefully at it now, look carefully and then become aware of what's in your peripheral vision. What's in your peripheral vision was there all along, but you weren't conscious of it. Right? Especially when you're staring at the Tonka, you're just you've, you're not aware of your peripheral vision. And then you became conscious of it. That was sight consciousness. So consciousness is when, yeah, it's the thing that enables you to know something is happening. We have so much sensory input that we need to filter it. Uh, you have touch sensations all over your body right now. The touch of your clothes, the touch of sitting, the air in the room. You can't process all of that, but most of it you don't need to process. So you just ignore it. You're not conscious of it. But if you really want to pay attention to something, you need to become conscious of it. So this is the consciousness. And it's the coming together of these three, the sense object, the sense organ, and sense consciousness that we call sense contact. That's followed immediately by Vedana. I like to leave the word Vedana untranslated, the feeling because of its connotations in English of emotions, uh, sometimes gives the wrong idea. There is a, actually an English word that's fairly good, it's valence, but unfortunately it's not well known. If you have a background in chemistry, then yeah, the word valence may mean something to you. It's whether something is positively or negatively charged. All of our sensory input is either positively or negatively or neutrally charged. And that's what Vedna is referring to. Three categories, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Neuroscience tells us within one-tenth of a second of a sensory stimulus, we have categorized it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's very brief. We don't normally pay much attention to the Vedana, except Vedana run our lives. It's almost like when we got here, 
somebody handed us an instruction manual and we open it up and it says, seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever, which unfortunately doesn't really work. Uh, the seeking pleasure, remember the hippies? Remember their slogan, if it feels good, do it. Yeah, it didn't turn out too well. And yeah, sometimes there's actual pain that's useful. Uh, when you're doing your workout, right? <laughs> you do want to work to the point of it being a little discomfort. You know, you're lifting weights or you're hiking up a hill or you're swimming laps or whatever you're doing to keep your body in shape. And yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable. Just sitting on your couch, eating, I don't know, chips and fried food, yeah, it's quite comfortable, it's pleasurable, but it's actually not so helpful. So sometimes we need to put up with the unpleasant and sometimes the pleasant isn't actually what we need to be pursuing. And yet these Vedna tend to run our lives. Think about all the things that go on in a culture, right? Uh, people are, People are disappointed now because they can't go to the club, right? Why do they want to go to the club? Well, it's a source of pleasant Vedana, right? Why, why do you wear the particular clothes that you wear? Either because it's comfortable and a source of pleasant Vedana, or it's stylish and people will think you're cool and people thinking you're cool is a source of pleasant Vedana. If you look around, if you observe people, they're seeking pleasant Vedna, pretty much with everything they do that isn't running away from unpleasant Vedna. And yet we almost never notice the Vedna because what happens next is that we conceptualize the input. Can you all see this? Can you see the bird? Can you see the flowers? Yeah, you see the bird and the flowers? There's no bird or flowers. It's just colored shapes. That's all it is, is colored shapes. You made the bird in your head. You made the flowers in your head, right? It's a card, right? Well, you made the card in your head. All you're seeing on your screen is colored shapes. You know, these are my eyeglasses. No, you see colored shapes, but you're conceptualizing everything. You're categorizing it. This is a very useful thing to do, right? Your dog knows the sound of the can opener. It has conceptualized that sound as food is coming and it rushes into the kitchen and wags its tail because it's happy, right? So you don't need to be a genius to conceptualize. Um, whether amoebas conceptualize, I kind of doubt it, but they do react to sense stimuli. You put salt in with amoebas, they don't like it. Unpleasant Vedana, they run away. You put food in, they run towards it. But you get a little bit higher up the cognitive stream, and we have this ability to conceptualize our input. This is very useful. We have some idea of what's going on. The problem arises 
in that sometimes we don't get the concept exactly right. Uh, think about the people who belong to that other political party. I mean, they were getting the same input as you, sort of, right? But they got the wrong concepts because they belong to that other party. And that other party is a whole bunch of concepts, just like the political party that you support. It's just a whole bunch of concepts. If I hold up this rectangular thing, yeah, you probably know what that is too, right? It's, it's a smartphone. Okay, all you're seeing is a black rectangular thing on your screen, but you're able to conceptualize it as something. This is a very good thing for being able to navigate our environment. The trick is not to be fooled by your conceptualizing. It's a useful thing, but we don't always get it right. The word sanya is usually translated as perception. So when you see that, you can know that it's the naming or conceptualizing part of our sensory input processing. And then this is followed by, well, processing that input. This is called thinking or emoting or remembering or intending. The word in Pali is Sankara. Sankara literally means to make together. So good translation would be fabrication or concoction. But when it's talking about our mental processing, it's probably better to translate it as mental fabrications or mental activities. And it refers to thoughts, emotions, memories, intentions. But remember, it's making together. So if I say to you, can you remember the first teacher you had when you went to school? All right, that was a bunch of concepts I just threw at you. Remembering, teacher, school, first, right? These, these are concepts. And I strung the concepts together to make a sentence. And then I tossed the sentence at my computer, which digitized the sound waves, sent them through the ether, and they jumped out of your computer and you heard them as sound waves. And hopefully you got the same idea that I had, right? I strung together some concepts, I threw them at you and you got the sounds that represent those concepts and you strung those concepts together and hopefully you had the memory of your first teacher pop into your head. If I say to you, think about that time when you were scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and an octopus grabbed you around your left ankle and tried to drag you to the bottom. You're like, no, that never happened. But you understood what I said, even though I'm making up this ridiculous story, right? Concepts don't have to be accurate for us to make something up with them, right? 
Maybe you have been to Australia. Maybe you've even been scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. I doubt any of you were dragged to the bottom of the ocean by an octopus. But you know bottom of the ocean, you know octopus, you can put all this together. The putting it together is what we call sankara, thinking or emoting or remembering. Okay, so what have we got so far? Sense objects, yeah, the tanka. We got sense organs, your eyeball. We've got sense consciousness, you become aware of the tanka. You've got the identification, that's a tanka, right? If I sort of wiggle this around, you, you maybe can't quite see what's going on until I hold it still. Yeah, this is Kuan Yin. All right, the Tonka is white Tara. It's the same concept. It's the Bodhisattva of compassion, right? It's two different visual forms for representing two different people who represent the goddess of compassion. And yet you're able to take the two very different things. This is a small thing I can hold in my hand. It comes out of Japanese culture, whereas this comes out of Tibetan culture, the Tonka. And yet they represent something that you can't even draw a picture of called compassion, but you have that concept. And then you can think about some compassionate action you did or some compassionate action you'd like to do or someone who did some compassionate action for you, right? So objects, consciousness, contact, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, conceptualizing the input and then processing it. This is, this is how we process our input. And that's, I think the most interesting part of the sutta is it lays out how the Buddha conceptualized how we process our input. Now, the important thing to remember is that it's not a one-shot deal. It's not that you see something, you get the Vedna, you know what it is, you have a thought and it's over. Because you might've noticed that one thought leads to another thought leads to another thought. Because the thoughts are input to the sixth sense and therefore they have Vedna as well. And they can result in more concepts and more thoughts. And as you start building up these thoughts, it might get out of hand. This is mental proliferation. The Pali word is papancha. It's, it's one of the best words in Pali. Think about the last time you meditated. You sat down, you put your attention on your object, your breath or whatever. And you started, yeah, just trying to be there without getting distracted. But soon you found your mind had wandered off into, you know, planning your day or remembering your last holiday or, or whatever it wandered off into. This is what our minds tend to do. 
it's actually a useful survival mechanism to yeah keep checking out our environment keep getting a sense of what's really going on and process that as well. The only problem is it can get out of hand. An example of papancha. A woman asks her husband to go to the market and get some potatoes. Yes, dear. Just as he's about to walk out the door, she says to him, be sure and get a good price. Yes, dear. So he's walking to the market and he's thinking, yeah, I got to get a good price, but I bet she wants me to get good potatoes as well. It's hard to get good potatoes for a good price. You can get bad potatoes for a good price. You can get good potatoes for a bad price. You've got to watch these potato sellers. They'll, they'll put the good potatoes on top and then the bad potatoes on the bottom. Oh, sometimes they have a rotten potato in there. I hate the smell of rotten potatoes. At that point, he arrives at the market, walks up to the potato seller and screams in his face, you can keep your rotten potatoes and walks away. This is papancha. Our thinking just sometimes gets out of hand. And what the Buddha is saying is that our papancha gets out of hand and this leads to all the evil, unwholesome states, such as quarrels and disputes. It just runs away with us. So what the Buddha is promising is the end of dukkha, right? You're all familiar with this. He's multiple places said, all I teach is dukkha and the end of dukkha. So when there's a sensory input, there's going to be the Vedana. And the actual words for pleasant and unpleasant Vedana are Sukha Vedana and Dukkha Vedana. And what the Buddha is promising is the end of Dukkha Vedana. But not all Dukkha Vedana, just the downstream Dukkha Vedana. Remember, there's the external sense contact, you see something. And then it, the sight produces a Vedana. The colors go together, the shapes are nice. And then you conceptualize it and think about it. And that produces another Vedana. It might be different from the Vedana of the sight. For example, if when you were meditating and I struck the bell, the bell made a pleasant sound, but maybe you were just about to get really concentrated. And then I interrupted your meditation just as it started to go. And so now you had the unpleasant experience of having your meditation interrupted, right? Uh, there, there's lots of examples of there being a neutral Vedana and then us having a negative reaction to it or a positive reaction to it. The Vedana of the sensory input, yeah, didn't really matter. It's our reaction that we're really noticing. And what the Buddha is promising is to teach us how to not have the negative reactions, the reactions that produce negative Vedana. There's a sutta in the Connected Discourses, Samyutta Nikaya, number 36, book 36, sutta number six, called The Dart. What the Buddha says is an unawakened person experiences some physical pain 
and then gets upset about experiencing the physical pain. It's like someone who's struck with a dart and then struck again by a second dart that they threw at themselves. But an awakened person experiences the same physical pain, but does not generate the downstream upset, the downstream negative Vedna. It's like someone being struck by a dart, but not being struck by a second dart. So what the Buddha is promising is a way for us to learn to not get caught in the downstream unpleasant Vedna of our thoughts, our reactions, our emotions that arise from our external five sense input. And one of the best ways to do that is the second establishment of mindfulness, which if you remember is mindfulness of Vedana. What the Buddha is saying is pay attention to the Vedana. Pay attention to the Vedana of the th things you see, hear, all of the Vedana that are coming from your five senses and pay attention to the Vedana of your reactions. And what he's promising is if you don't do the craving and clinging as part of your reaction, then you won't set yourself up for dukkha vedna. You won't be experiencing any more mental dukkha. You're still going to be existing in the physical world. I'm sure if the Buddha stubbed his toe, he experienced painful physical sensations. We know he had a bad back. Sometimes he would give the introduction to a talk and then turn to someone like Mahakachana or Sariputta or Ananda and ask them to elaborate, I need to go lie down, my back needs a rest. And he would lie down and listen to the talk. And when it was over, he'd come out and say, yeah, if I'd given the talk, that's exactly what I would have said. But he obviously was having physical dukkha from his bad back. And yet, it said that he didn't experience any more dukkha. He didn't experience any more dukkha that he was getting from his reactions to his bad back or anything else. This is what the Buddha is promising us. You, you need to change your processing so that, yeah, you get sensory input, you conceptualize it, pay attention to your concepts. Are they accurate? And then don't get lost and whatever comes next, don't fall into papancha. So what the Buddha originally said to the monks was don't let your sensory input trigger papancha. Papancha can lead to delight, welcoming and holding. If you don't get entangled in this way, then the underlying tendencies to unwholesome states are not there. This is the end of quarrels and disputes and other unwholesome actions. So I'm going to stick something in the chat that is basically what I just said. Right? This is the whole list. This is, this is the essence of this whole sutta laid out in a nice little form. Dependent on sense organ and sense object, sense consciousness, and sense consciousness, contact arises. 
Yeah, actually, it starts a little earlier. Dependent on sense organ and sense conscious, sense object, sense consciousness arises. Dependent on the three, contact arises. Dependent on contact, Vedna arises. Dependent on Vedna, Sanya arises. Dependent on Sanya, thinking arises. Thinking, emoting, remembering. In Pali, there's only the word vitaka, meaning thinking. It is not a separate word for emotions. So when you see thinking, it really means thinking and emotions. Dependent on thinking, mental proliferation arises. Dependent upon mental proliferation, delight, welcoming, and holding arise. Dependent upon delight, welcoming, and holding, underlying unwholesome tendencies are strengthened. Dependent upon underlying unwholesome tendencies, quarrels, disputes, and other evil, unwholesome states arise. Right. And so what Mahakachyana says is possible to stop this at any place, because this is dependently originating, right? Then if you can stop one of these, what follows doesn't happen. Now, sometimes it's very important not to look I hope you're all very discriminating as to what movies you watch, what TV programs you watch, what books you read, what websites you visit. There's stuff out there that it just isn't useful to visit, right? But we do need our senses to navigate our environment. So it's not like you can shut off all of your, all of your sensory contacts. They're going to be happening and they're going to generate Vedna. That's just wired in there. Anytime there's a sound, you're going to judge it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And that's not under your conscious control. As the sounds get more complex and it becomes music or talking, you process it more and maybe that's under your conscious control. All right. But the initial bare sensory input, yeah, that's just happening. Then there's the conceptualizing of it. Often we get fooled by our conceptualizing. We conceptualize things inaccurately. We have to have the concepts to navigate the environment, but we need to be careful and not get lost in our conceptualizing. One of the things that my teacher Ayakema used to say, it's as though we operate under the assumption, if I think it, it must be so. Uh, we had a president in this country recently who operated from that. It did not go well, okay? But we have this tendency, if I thought it, then it must be accurate. We wanna keep checking in. It, it helps to get new information and process things in a new way. Presumably, you're all interested in advancing on the spiritual path. Well, if you're going to advance on the spiritual path, you have to leave where you are now. If you're going to advance anywhere, you have to leave where you are. Right? So be willing to let go of your concepts, your ideas, and everything else, particularly your views and opinions, and move on to something better. Right. So, yeah, sometimes you let it go at the concept level. Sometimes you let it go at the thinking level. 
The trick is not to get lost in Papancha where it's the thinking spirals out of control because that'll lead you to delight, welcoming and holding. And that strengthens the underlying wholesome tendencies, which is what produces Sudukkha. So in the Sutta, it, when Mahakachana finishes, he says, well, you guys should have asked the Buddha, but this is what I can do for you. And so they go see the Buddha and they say, Mahakachana says this. And the Buddha says, yeah, if I'd given the talk, I would have said the same thing. Now it's called the Honeyball Sutta because at the end of it, after the Buddha says that he would have said the same thing, his attendant Ananda says, Venerable Sir, it's just as if a man exhausted by hunger and weakness came upon a honey ball. Wherever he would taste it, he would find a sweet, delectable flavor. So too, Venerable Sir, any able-minded bhikkhu, wherever he might scrutinize with wisdom the meaning of this discourse, would find satisfaction and confidence of mind. So this is the sutta, I think, lays out how we process our sensory input in a way that is actually very helpful, lays it out in the most clear, and basically tells us, pay attention. Don't get lost in your thinking and run off into papancha. Pay attention even to your conceptualizing. No guarantee you're going to get it right. 